Exodus chapter 25 and verse 1 for our scripture reading today, we're going to be considering building the house of God. Exodus 25, 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze. And this, then in verse 8, we have the conclusion. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> Building the house of God. We're returning today to that part of the life of Moses where he was on Mount Sinai, what we call the apex of the old covenant. And when we think about Moses being on the mountain with the Lord, we usually think about the Ten Commandments, and rightly so, that was what he got. But as you read through this section of Scripture, you'll see that uh, God gave Moses a lot more laws than just those ten, and they really amplified those Ten Commandments. But a whole lot of that time was spent giving him great detailed instructions about the building of this sanctuary, the tabernacle, the house of God, later known as the temple in Jerusalem. The word sanctuary simply means that it was a holy place, dedicated unto God, and a place where God then would dwell among his people. The great preacher Adrian Rogers famously said, in the Old Testament, God uh, had a house uh, for his people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for his house. And uh, that is a wonderful distinction between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, we know exactly what the house of God is in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Jesus promised us very famously that where two or three of you will gather together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. And so we have what we consider to be a corporate promise, a promise from God to his people when they gather, when they assemble together, and by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I will be there with you. My, what a marvelous privilege it is to be able to come together as God's people and worship him together and serve him together in the New Testament church. He also made an individual promise in John 14, 16. He said, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so we have the promise of the presence of God to us individually as believers, but also corporately when we gather together in the church. This is why we say so often that the church isn't buildings. The church is people. While that is true, it is also true that since ancient times, churches have built buildings to meet in, dedicated them to God and His worship and service, and have then used them. And this practice is both an incredible blessing and sometimes a bother as well. It's a blessing to have a place that creates an environment for worship. 
a place that has classrooms and offices and kitchens and fellowship halls and nurseries. Thank God for the nursery. Amen? I tell you. Nurseries and pews and air conditioners. Yeah, thank God for air conditioners. Bathrooms, thank God for bathrooms. I tell you, it's, it's great to have a building that has all these conveniences that we can meet together in, but remind ourselves every now and then, we can do without them. We can, we have, but it's a whole lot easier to do church when you have them. But buildings cost a lot. They need maintenance over time. If we're not careful, we'll focus more on our buildings than we do on our mission. Our mission is to reach people with the gospel, disciple them, train them, baptize them, and then teach them to become productive people in our church and in advancing the kingdom of Christ. So buildings can be distracting. Buildings can be confining. Uh, Vladimir Putin made international news back in 2016 when he enacted a law prohibiting Russian Christians under penalty of law from sharing their faith anywhere except within registered church buildings in Russia. One writer rather cynically observed that no such law is required in America. Ouch. He went on to point out, of course, how that we so often tend to have our ministry confined within our buildings. And we're not real good at sharing our faith outside of them. Something to think about today. Buildings then cost a lot. and uh, They can uh, be distracting. Buildings can be confining. Persecuted churches don't meet in buildings with steeples and signs. So this entire concept of building buildings is uh, relatively new. uh, Relatively Uh, A lot of ancient churches all around the world, churches built, church buildings, churches, though have been established, grown, survived, and even thrived without them. Sometimes churches have built buildings that become their primary outreach. Uh, Robert Shuler, the the former Crystal Cathedral, comes quickly to mind. But you know, the New Testament gives us no mandate about building buildings. None. None. No instructions, no regulation. And because of that, over my 45 years of pastoral work, I've seen more confusion and arguments in churches about buildings than anything else. Literally, I'm not making this up. Literally, more confusion, more arguments over buildings than anything else. Don't think I'm anti-building. I'm not. I thank God for the facilities we have here at Faith Baptist Church. I'm glad we've got them. I've experienced firsthand the frustration from meeting in different places, never knowing from one one week to the next whether we'd be allowed to meet in a space or not. And it's funny for a few weeks to be able to say, well, you know, if you could find us, we'd love to have you worship with us. It's funny for a week or two, but it gets old, really old in a hurry. I'm not anti-building. I'm thankful for them. 
And so this morning, we're going to be talking about this. You say, why are we bringing this up? Because it's all over the book of Exodus. You can't really preach on the life of Moses without looking at these incredible passages where God gave them such detailed instructions on what to build when they built him a house, how to build it, and yeah, how to pay for it. All that's in the text. Now, the tabernacle was designed to be mobile. Eventually, it would be replaced by the temple. This would be built on land that was purchased by King David. And it's recorded for us then in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. I'd love to preach that passage for you today, but we don't have time. Uh, that, that's just what happened. Ultimately, there would be a temple. It would be in Jerusalem. To this day, it's still known as the Temple Mount. Although the Muslim Dome of the Rock sits on it right now. Its time is limited, by the way. Before that, the tabernacle was established at a place called Shiloh. Yeah. Shiloh. So this morning, then, we'll look at at this passage of Scripture under three general headings. And the first one is this. Uh, God told them to build. God told them to build. Verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Make it just so. Say, what's that mean? Just like I tell you. Make it just so. There's absolutely no doubt that God commanded the people then through Moses, the man of God, to build this structure. If you read through this section of Scripture, you'll see chapter after chapter of God going through detailed instructions and then Moses telling the people exactly what God told him to tell them. And it's all laid out for it. Make it just so, just so. I like that because it meant there'd be no discussion of what to build or how to build it. (laughs) No committee, no debate, no architect. No one would propose that they use less costly material or gripe about how big it was. Nothing, nothing. They did not get one bit of input. God told them what to build and exactly how to build it right down to the color of the drapes. Amen. Everything, everything was laid out. Just so. This brings us to an important point for our consideration on this side of Calvary here in the New Testament. Many pastors today make it a practice, especially when it comes to buildings for churches, of standing before God's people saying, well, God told me we need to build this. Or God told me that we need to buy this property. Or I've been meeting with God and God told me we need to do this. So I've got a simple rule of thumb about all that to give you today. Unless you see a pastor's face glowing with the glory of Almighty God, it is highly questionable at best, at best, highly questionable for him to claim that kind of divine authority. 
especially since God said absolutely nothing in the entire New Testament revelation about what kind of buildings his churches should build or if they should build them at all. The only references to building in the New Testament as far as churches are concerned speaks of people added by God. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that they would be added and they would form a habitation of God then through the Spirit. Simon Peter called them, and I love that old King James word, lively stones. You also as lively stones. Sometimes the stones are very lively. You all as lively stones are being built together as a habitation of God through the Spirit. That's 1 Peter 2. But buildings, physical buildings, church plants, there is no just so in the New Testament. So church buildings then are things that we have to build like we have to do a lot of other things that aren't covered with a specific thus saith the Lord in the New Testament. How do we decide what to do? Churches have to do a lot of things. And so we have a couple of passages I'm going to give you this morning just briefly. Ephesians 4.3 says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the unity of the Spirit and the peace of God guides us in our deliberations. What does that mean? That means that as a church body, we must seek God's will and come to some consensus about what we need to do. And when we have then the peace of God, when we are able then to come together as a body and, and we sense God's leadership in a particular direction and, and there, we have peace about it and we have then the unity of the Spirit about it, uh, then that's when it's time to proceed. Does that mean that everything we do as a church has to be unanimous? No. But pretty close. Pretty close. We bring something up, if we have something to do, and there's a lot of opposition, it's causing confusion, it doesn't necessarily mean no, or that God's not in it. But it does mean that we need to pray about it some more. Amen? Amen. We need to have some conversations and listen to one another and talk with one another because it is our business to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and to let the peace of God rule in this one body, this church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God told them to build. And so when they moved forward, <laughs> they were moving forward in obedience. God told them to build, told them what to build, how to build it. Everything was there. God told them to build. But you notice the second one. God asked them to give. God, I chose that word carefully. God told them to build. God then asked them to give. Exodus 25, 2. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. Isn't that an interesting choice of words that God used? 
Everyone that has a willing heart, you shall take my offering. Now, it's described in great detail, and you can read that. You see God telling Moses in chapter 25, and then God, uh, we'll see Moses then recounting all of those words of the Lord to the people in chapter 35. So it's told twice. We get a very, very detailed description of this offering God called mine. Over and over again, if you read these passages, you'll see that expression, a willing heart, a willing heart. God only wanted them to give that they were willing to give. And that means that he required their willingness from them. So this wasn't something that was forced. It wasn't an edict. It wasn't a command. He said, we're going to take up an offering, and you take it only from those who are willing to give. It's important for us to remember every now and then that God doesn't need our money. God's not in a tight. God doesn't need our money. It is a sacred privilege for us to be able to give to him and his work. Whatever it is, it's a sacred privilege. And since this was such a big deal and God made such a big deal about it, I want us to spend a little time looking at how this played out. We see it in verse 5, uh, whoever is of a willing heart, Exodus 35 and 5, whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze. And then Moses went on as he's telling the people how to give and what to give over and over again, the long, long list of things, all kinds of things, all kinds of cloth, all kinds of spices, all kinds of building material. It's all spelled out there. Uh, after verse 5. Then verse 20, when Moses had finished, all the congregation of the Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Uh, what'd they do? Uh, well, they, they obviously, they, they, they went home. They thought about what they were going to give. They prayed about what they were going to give. So Moses was before them. He told them about this offering. Then the people went home. They thought about what they'd heard and thought about what they had. And as their spirits then were stirred, the Bible says, as their hearts were made willing, then they brought their offering. That's verse 21. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, there it is again, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And then it spells out all the other things they brought too. Now we have to notice that this had nothing to do with their tithes. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30 Establish the principle of the tithe and all the tithe of the land where the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. The tithe is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Uh, the tithe means a tenth. That is a tenth of their increase. Year by year. The Bible said it. God said it. The tithe is the Lord's. And we may think that that was just something about the law of Moses. But remember that tithing was established before the law was given. Genesis 14, 8, there was a guy named Melchizedek who was a king of Salem. That's the king of Jerusalem. And he brought forth bread and wine to meet Abraham. He was the priest of the Most High God. 
and he, that's Melchizedek, blessed him, that was Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, tithes of all. That's Genesis 14. All the way back in the book of Genesis, Abraham. We had that principle of tithing established. Tithing is one instruction out of all of the instructions given to us in Scripture about which God said, just try it and see if I won't bless you. God didn't say that about anything else. Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now. That is, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I'll not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And if we're inclined to say, well, you know, tithing was just an Old Testament thing, remind yourself, Hebrews chapter 7 gives us this commentary about that event with Abraham and Melchizedek. And it says this, Hebrews 7 and 8, here mortal men receive tithes. That is, we give God's tithes to people. We give God's tithes to his churches. Here mortal men receive them, but there he receives them. Of whom it is witness that he lives. So when we give our tithes to our church, then they are going directly into the bank of heaven because we give them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> the tithes in the Old Testament were brought to the house of God. We do the same thing. We give our tithes to the church. But the offering for this building was not their tithes. had nothing to do with the tithes. This was a willing offering they gave because their hearts were stirred to build this building for the Lord. Now, God would establish another offering for them that was designed to provide for the uh, needs of the temple, the structure of the temple, the maintenance of the temple. It came to be known as the temple tax. It's established in Exodus 30 and 14. Yeah, part of this law that Moses got on the mountain Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. It was half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourself. Half shekel for every person once a year. This was something that came up in the New Testament. You remember when Simon Peter came to Jesus and said, they said, Jesus, they're talking about us because we hadn't paid our temple tax. And so Jesus said, no big deal, Simon Peter, go cast a line down there in the sea and you'll catch a fish. And when that fish is done, it'll have a gold coin in its mouth and no doubt a full shekel because the tax was only half a shekel. And he said, you'll have enough for me and you both. And so you go pay our tax with it. And he did. See, that was, it was still all the way up in the New Testament. They were still collecting what came to be known then as the temple tax. Well, the, the, this offering wasn't the temple tax. It was not the tithe. This was something that God asked them for, asked them to give, but only, only, only if they wanted to. Only if they wanted to. Only if they had a willing heart and their spirit moved them to bring it. And the Bible says repeatedly then they brought the Lord's offering. Why'd they call it that? 
Ask yourself a quick question. Where did these slaves get all this gold and silver and precious stones? Where did they get all of that valuable fabric, all that precious thread, skeins and skeins of it? Scarlet cloth and royal purple cloth. Where did they get all those valuable skins? Where did it come from? All that acacia, acacia lumber. If you're reading from the old King James, it's shadam. All that shadam wood, that acacia or cedar lumber. Where did they get it from? All those valuable spices and oils. Where did they get it? They'd been slaves in Egypt. Where did they get it? Glad you asked. Exodus 12, 35. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. An incredible story. God gave the Egyptians the desire, that is, God gave them favor. God gave them the desire to give their stuff to the Hebrew people. And there's really no other place that it could have come from except from, from them. That all of these supplies, all the things that they would need to build the tabernacle, the Egyptians had given to them. And they'd been carrying it around then for the whole time they'd been journeying, all these months. And we can understand easily the gold and the silver and the bronze and the precious stones the Egyptians, after all, were famous for these things. All those clothes. The children of Israel were probably the most lavishly dressed slaves in human history. They, they had a lot of stuff. They plundered the Egyptians. Did they deserve it? Absolutely they did. After all those years of hard labor as slaves, when they were not compensated, God saw to it that they were paid for their labor. They did. They plundered the Egyptians. We can understand the gold and silver and precious stones, but then there were spices and oils and those cedar planks. Some Egyptian comes up to one of the children of Israel. Hey, you know what? I, I want to give you a couple of pounds of cinnamon. Man, that's just what I want. I, I've, I've, I've got a, a, a container of olive oil. I want to give you, man, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but man, I'm glad to have it. That's just what I need. You're exactly right. I've got some cedar boards for you, whole stack of them. Man, I've always wanted a stack of cedar boards. It's just what I wanted. And there they go. Walking through the Red Sea, carrying all this stuff that God gave them before they even knew they were going to need. Or what they were going to need it for. So the children of Egypt then wanted to give it the, the people of Israel were glad to get it and they got to carry it around long enough to where they got used to having it they were slaves they never had anything now they had all this incredible wealth and God gives them a simple formula go home and look at all that stuff 
And you give me whatever you want to give. Well, their hearts were willing and their spirits were stirred. And it was far more than just an offering. It was a work God was doing in their hearts and on their hearts. Because their hearts were made willing and their spirits were stirred. You know, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 6, 19, when he said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Please notice he didn't say anything about the tithes. He's talking about something different. Not our tithes, our treasures. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. <clears throat> well, banks are starting to go under again in this country. That's been in the news a lot here lately. Stock market has been pretty brutal lately. Has. Makes it kind of stand out that Jesus says, I've got a place where you can put your money where you will never lose a penny of it. Where it cannot be lost. Lay up treasures in heaven. The bank of heaven is never going to go under. Not one thing we send ahead will be lost. Not one bit. And the second thing he tells us then is. Wherever we invest our treasure, well, that's where our hearts will be too. You see, God still uses giving to do a work on our hearts. What he was doing then. So God told them to build, and God asked them to give. He wasn't talking about their tithes. He wasn't talking about their temple tax. He was talking about a willing offering. He had supplied it to them. He had let them hold on to it long enough to where they got used to having it. And then God said to Moses, tell the people to bring an offering, but only if they're willing. Bring what they want. Bring what their spirits stir them to bring. God told them to build. God asked them to give. And then God used what they gave. I love Chapter 36 and verse 5. We're almost done. Hang with me. They spoke to Moses saying, these were the builders, the, the people who were charged with the construction project. Verse 5, they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. Don't you just love that? Much more than enough. So Moses gave a commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary and the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done indeed too much. You see, when, when people's hearts are willing and their spirits are stirred, there is more than enough. And if we wanted to contrast that maybe with struggling along and taking decades to pay for something, then maybe we ought to notice that contrast. 
Because when people's hearts are willing and their spirits are stirred, they give more than is necessary. More than enough. What a, what a testimony that is for God and his people. How important was it all? Well, we notice how it all ended up. Exodus 40 and 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A cloud covered the tent of the congregation. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There wasn't some cleft to the rock that Moses could hide in. Even Moses couldn't go in. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tabernacle, you see, was built by the plan of God, by the provision of God, through the free will offerings of the people. When it was finished, it was paid for in full, and the glory of God was seen in it by day and by night. God used that tabernacle then to guide his people literally for as long as these people lived. For the rest of their lives, God would use that tabernacle as a display of his glory and to guide his people. Uh, that's a great story. How does it apply to us? Well, I've got a few observations for you and we'll be done. They're not painful. They're just true. Because you see, if the Bible is true and we believe the Bible, then we believe that what we give to God is the only, is the only thing that we can be absolutely sure that will not be lost. After all, all of us are going to face death one day, and you know how much we're going to leave behind of all the stuff we've accumulated? All of it. All of it. But we can invest in heaven and none of that, none of it will be lost. Jesus Christ said it and he told us just as much of the truth when he told us that as when he told us that whosoever believeth on me should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the words of Jesus are true. What we give to him is not lost. It can be difficult for us to remember that the things we get to hold in our hand for a while are really not ours. It's because God lets us hold them for a while. Doesn't mean they've ceased to be His. We are stewards. That's our stewardship. We are stewards of these things. God seldom asks us to give Him everything that He has put in our hand. But we will give an account to Him for what we did with it. We are accountable. God did not put me as a pastor, and he did not put his churches in the arm-twisting business, period. Uh, you may be, this may be your first time here at Faith Baptist, and you may be thinking, well, just another church talking about money all the time. No, you ask our people. I don't preach about money a lot. 
In fact, we've had new members who've asked me, do you ever preach about giving? And I tell them the same thing I tell everybody else. I preach about giving when I'm in a series and it comes up. Why am I preaching about it today? Because I'm preaching about Moses. And you can't tell the story about Moses being on the mountain without covering all those chapters where God told him exactly how to build this tabernacle and exactly how to pay for it. And he did it, and they did it. That's why I'm preaching about it today. I know there are churches all over this country that constantly harp on money. Faith Baptist isn't one of those. I'm here to say to you today, I believe God. We see ourselves as stewards. We seek God. We give our tithes. And if there's a special opportunity for giving and God stirs our spirits, we will give. And if we need more, then we pray for God to make us willing. Because there are resources out there. What's our plan? Our stewardship plan is pretty simple. Occasionally, pretty regular in fact. I like to remind us all. That we were slaves to a cruel master. Before God delivered us, we served in bondage. That master would have taken everything we had. He would have taken our life. He would have taken our eternity. We'd have nothing. We'd be nothing. Had we remained as slaves to that cruel master of sin. But thank God our Savior Jesus Christ delivered us from that bondage. And he has blessed us and blessed us and blessed us. And if we'll think of that, think of how God has blessed us. We'll pray and seek him so that our spirits are stirred and our hearts are willing. There's enough. And more than enough. That's how God builds himself a building. Well, is Faith Baptist in a building program? Nope. Nope. Uh, no, Brother Rick, you're, you're fit to get us in one, aren't you? Nope. That, that, that's, that's not my plan. Not, not going there. Remember, my face ain't shining. Might be a little red, but it ain't shining. <laughs> if we go into a building project, I guarantee you this church will vote to do it. We'll seek consensus and seek God. And, and, and there are things that we need to build. Yeah. No, we're not in a building project. But we are still paying for the last one. And though I seldom ever say it, I'll say it today. You're a Sunday morning crowd. A lot of you never come to business meetings. Just in case you don't know, this building was built over 20 years ago. And before we got it paid for, we added this part on down here. And we've been paying our payments ever since and adding a little bit more to it. And Brother Danny was very uh, glad to be able to say that uh, at our last business meeting that we're now under $1 million, $950,000 that we still owe. And I'm as thankful for that as he is. I am very, very thankful for that. But it does bug me sometimes when I think about how much we've paid in interest over the last 20-something years because I guarantee you one thing, we have paid the banks enough interest that we could build another building and have it paid for. 
because we've been making our payments, adding to it since time to time. Just want us to think about it. That's all I can say. Think about what God's done for us, how God's blessed us. Think about how he delivered us from bondage and then he gave us everything we need and more to do what he wants us to do. That's all I can do. Just think about it. Maybe God would call on us to give a, an offering, to retire indebtedness. One of our ladies said, wouldn't it be great to be debt-free in 2023? I like that. It would be. Why do you do that? <laughs> For the glory of God. You say, well, God didn't tell us to pay off debt. God didn't tell us to build buildings either. But when we do, let me put his name on it. What a testimony it is when we can build a building and it's paid for when it's built. And we start using it. We can do that. We can do that too. We just need to pay off what we got and then start putting back. And first thing you know, we'll be ready to build another building. Whatever that might be. Or whatever else God might lead us to do. How God builds building. One more thing, we're done. Remember that in the New Testament, God has a people for His house. I don't know how much the tabernacle cost. I've seen estimates made. Don't know how much the temple cost. I've seen estimates. But I know how much it costs to redeem your soul and mine. The precious blood. Whatever we might ever give, <laughs> it's nothing compared to what he gave for us. I wonder today, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you part of his family? Are you one of those who are being builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit? You have a church home. You've been saved. Have you followed him in baptism? You've got a decision to make today.